everyone, uh, Brett Thompson here, co-creator of Discourse ZA. And today we're going to be chatting about COVID-19 and government policies and their consequences. Joining me to sort of tackle this issue is TK Bowe. He is the senior lecturer at Northwest University's Public Administration and Governments Program and a public policy analyst focusing on local economic development and government institutional planning. TK, thanks very much for joining us. How are you doing? Uh, afternoon, I'm well. Thanks for having me, Brett. Yeah, it's good to it's good to actually have you back on because um, we spoke pretty much a year ago uh, at a sort of a different sort of tumultuous time in South Africa, but obviously not at the level that we are experiencing at the moment. Um, for the record, we are recording on the 9th of April. And, um, you know, before we sort of tackle the real big discussion that we're going to get involved with today, uh, I wanted maybe if you could sort of touch on where from where we spoke last, because we spoke about the elections and the winners and losers. Uh, in South Africa in 2019. And I wanted to know maybe if you could touch on how you see the ANC has, has done in general over the past 12 months and obviously in the lead up to that and uh, and now how they are starting to respond to this, uh, well not starting, but how they are responding to this massive uh, global pandemic. All right, now, again, uh, thanks for having me. I'll, I'll start with, uh, obviously you have to start with the, with the head man, which is a uh, present uh, Sarah Posa and the fact that, look, he went into the elections basically as the ANC's trump card. By that I mean, if you actually look at the, the how the ANC and how they won, if it it's actually I, I mean I'm sure the Secretary General of the ANC wouldn't like me saying this, but if it wasn't basically for him being the poster boy of the ANC, things could have and should have probably been worse for the ANC. But post that, I think he's encountered what. Uh, Look, a lot of people, and I think maybe this is where we do need to maybe criticize your the print media and your, your more mainstream media, where there was just this belief that he's just going to go in and then all of a sudden all the bad things that had happened would just somehow dissipate and things would get better, the Ramaphora as it was called. But I think five or six months into what his presidency, people got to see that, listen, problems are far worse. If you look at how he's had to reorganize how he tackles ESCOM, basically the state-owned entities, let's just call them what they are, the state-owned entities. The fact that there's, there's been some movement, a few CEOs here acting, I think it was Jabu Mabuza was acting for a little while, he had to step down because of the fact that he, he also wasn't able to really keep the lights on that put a new person in and that's basically you can say that's been the summary of how the ANC has handled things where there's been a lot of promise uh, to, in terms of international investors and uh, us as citizens but in terms of can we say that things are, are much better yes politically I mean you don't have to read the newspapers with the thinking oh my word what's the latest scandal coming through it's just an issue of saying is he going to be able to deliver and I think maybe the, the reality of what the uh, the NC has been doing for the last 10 years has really sunk in that, look, he, it's going to take more than him being given five years to do this thing. It's probably going to take another 10 years to fix that through. And that has basically seeped in a lot of disappointment in terms of with people. And I think that's where generally before COVID hit, there was a general disappointment with how the president and the government was responding to things. Yes, things were being done. They're like looking at the legal institutions. I mean, the new minister was coming in. They were finally hiring people. But I think what the speed with which people wanted things to be done and the thing at the and the pace things were being done, well, there was just this whole disjunction. I think it created a lot of disappointment within the population. And then enter COVID where, look, uh, President Sir Ramaphosa has been shown to be, I think what many people wanted, that's that steady leader. He he comes onto the platform, he gives you straight information. There's no I think double time or double speech, you kind of know what you're getting from him. And I think that sort of reassured people, but in reassuring people, it's also raised the question, 
well, if you've been able to be so calm, so cool and collected and how you're giving us, you know, a response to COVID, even the people you're putting around him. And I think we'll probably have to highlight people like the Minister of Health, uh, Dr. Zueli Kize, and Minister of the Police, who are controversial, but uh, Mr. Lekwitele. And also maybe some of the weak links people might highlight, like Figle Balula, which some people might say, look, if you've been actually been able to put a response team together, give us information blow by blow, why could you not do the same for everything else we've entrusted to it? So it's actually been a bit of a double-edged sword where you see what the potential is with this president and if he really puts his mind to putting, getting things done and, you know, maybe getting the country where it should be. And then there's a reality that, listen, he unfortunately doesn't govern by himself. He governs with a, with a party called the African National Congress who have a lot of uh, internal politics with it. And we cannot just ignore the internal politics. Yeah, I think that's a pretty pretty accurate and, and, and well-rounded summary of the last 12 months and, and in the lead up. I think <clears throat> decisiveness is something that we've seen, whether or not you um, are happy with the actions and the policies put in by government, there have been uh, opposed to some other governments around the world who haven't and some who have. Um, and we've done something. I think that's what South Africans but there's almost a sort of sense of relief, I feel, opposed to actually like being critical and thought—I mean, thoughtful on these decisions. They're just like, oh, finally, we made an, uh, we made up our minds and did something. Um, yeah. So I wonder if that's maybe um, that sort of rumaphoria that you mentioned. If it's just sort of coming up again, it's like, oh, we can still do it, you know, uh, you know, just make a decision and whether or not it's the right one. I guess this is what we're going to be unpacking today. Um, I do want to also speak slightly about our opposition parties just before we kick off into the government policy discussion. You know, uh, the DA being the biggest opposition, when we spoke last, I think we thought they were a bit of a loser in the election party, even though they still came <clears throat> in second, if you can call it that. And in the, the EFF, um, I mean, the Freedom Front Plus, is, we've, I mean, I don't know if it's even worth discussing because besides that election, I think that was it. They've, they've, they've gone and retired. Um, and, uh, but the EFF were, again, the fastest growing and moving party and always the most vocal, always being the most disruptive, always getting the most PR. Um, you know, they've got their PR kings and queens. I, um, I wonder how you see that now, just briefly, before, with, with the DA seeming to be another, their, their role of not much besides saying what the government is doing is wrong. They never really come with a solution to many things besides being critical, which I guess is a South African nature. I, uh, I know that we sometimes have discussion about the sort of EFF and how they approach things and particularly it's just nationalize everything. But I don't know if they've become as relevant um, uh, these days in the last, I mean, maybe in the last time we spoke and more recently when we spoke a couple of weeks ago, where they don't seem, because they don't have a platform where they can get things done and, and, and shout it across. Um, you know, are they, are they being quite relevant these days? So, I, I, yeah, to the DA and EFF, just, just on those sort of talking points, where, where do you think they stand? Well, let's start with the, think the second, oh, they call it the official opposition party, and I think it's a title they use rather quite liberally, because some mm -hmm. people might argue... Well, they are, they're a liberal party. <laughs> well, yeah, liberal as well. Some people might argue that in terms of actual volume, the EFF is the official opposition party. But look, I think the DA, again, picking up from nine months ago, if I'm not mistaken, they went in with one leader, and now they're basically having an acting leader who COVID has basically stopped his ascension to power. He's still the man, basically, it's either going to be his seat or he's warming it up with somebody else. But I think there's about three people who are contesting his position. It's uh, Mr. Mbali Nduli from KZN. 
and there is, I think, uh, Mr. John Booty from Gauteng, and I'm not sure if there's anyone else. So basically, COVID has also kind of stopped the DA getting its house in order. But look, that's been the key issue of the DA, isn't how they're going to get the house in order. And I think the DA is it that, you know, that brick which people didn't want to speak about, but it's an issue of saying, what is the DA? It, so I know you just say it's like it is a liberal party, but uh, there's this big discussion in South Africa, which is what is what does it mean to be liberal in South Africa? You know, this is a country where ideology, look, it's maybe by virtue of the population, by virtue of our history, liberalism is not something that, I think people are liberal in the sense that they respect individual rights. But there's also a thing which says, listen, our history is such that it's a collective and that you can't simply just ignore the fact that, look, you need to sometimes do things which go anti-liberalism. And one would look at the issue of the economy, the issue of black economic empowerment, which, look, I don't think it's a mark of saying whether you are liberal or not, whether you support BEE or not. It could just be an issue that, look, I am for BEE, I just don't support the fact that it's structurally it's working. And I think the DA has never really taken the time to actually have that deep conversation. It doesn't have to be with us as a population. It can just be amongst itself. If you look at its policy documents, they're quite light on the fact of what, what is the DA. And the fact that, listen, they're not really winning the debate in South Africa about what they are. But what I mean by that is people paint the DA for what it is. It's what I believe. It's what we as analysts sometimes say. It's what people outside might say. The voters might say. Hey, sometimes what the ANC says. But the DA has really failed at this to say, listen, this is what we stand for. Whether it's right or wrong, this is what we stand for. And this is what we're going forward. The last time they did that, it was under Tony Leon. And it was an issue of where he, he knew very well what Tony Lund stood. Whether he liked it or not, it was really immaterial. He knew what we we're standing for. Now the issue is to say, you can choose to be a Tony Leon, which is to say, this is what we stand for. But then are you willing to say, listen, you'll either always come in second or third. And then enter the EFF. If there's one thing we have to give, like you say, you have to give the EFF. They're very clear. The ideology, if you're really studying it, might not be the clearest in the world. The Marxist, Leninist, uh, feminist thing, which if, I mean, I'm uh, sure Ludwig as a, as a philosopher would have his take on it to say, listen, truth be told, it's too much of a mismatch. But in terms of what they politically stand for, it, it, look, that's redress. They're very much about redress. Hence, if it wasn't for the EFF, uh, the issue of land would still be, look, something the ANC can punt around, but it's an issue of saying when they start to punt it around, that is to say, this confusion amongst the ANC, the EFF, has this ability just to remind the population, look, they're floundering, they're messing up on it, which brings the AC back to the table, saying, no, no, we, we, we clearly do know what we're speaking about when we're saying land. So the FF has to be given credit for, they know what the ideology is. Now, again, much like any opposition party around the world, or opposition politics, the key issue will be, to what end? Where, where does it end? Does the, like you're saying, do they view themselves as saying, listen, eventually we want to really be the government in waiting, Hence, maybe there's been pullings about them saying, listen to the DA, we'll give you the city of Joburg if you give us time. What you're saying, that platform to be able to show what they can do. Now, it's again, now it's an issue of saying the DA in terms of a, a municipality, they've got enough in the Western Cape to show the rest of the population at a technical level, this is what we can do. Now, the problem seems to be if you were to give an EFF a, a metro in the heartbeat of the country, which is, sorry, Western Cape, which is Kauteng, uh, which is other Pretoria, Joburg, if they do well, what would that say? I think it would give the FF more ammunition to say, let us go in. So what the FF needs at the moment, beyond the rhetoric of winning the media wars, is an actual win, as you're saying, a real platform. And it can only come through a municipality. And that's, I think, the key debate going forward is, can they take a municipality? And can they actually take all the, the policies, especially the technical aspects of it, 
and put it into reality for voters to see that beyond being talking heads, they can actually govern. I mean, I just want you to unpack a little bit more on um, this, this interesting phenomenon that you've just sort of spoken about where you've got uh, the technical, the technocrats, I don't know if that's a correct term with the DAs doing, keeping books balanced in the Western Cape, you know, um, service delivery might be another discussion for another time, but they seem on the face of it, municipalities are being run better here. Um, whereas um, what you and the EFF don't have that ability to showcase that. Um, but if you if they did, they would might be more successful with voters because they have a proof of concept to say like we're doing it. We can not only say we want to provide for the people in our in our rhetoric, but we are able to do it ourselves at these areas and do it in an equitable way. And I don't know how you know all these all the things that, that that has been tried in the past has never worked. And but let's see, maybe they can do it right. Um, uh, but but the DA don't seem to have that ability. So they've got the technical show how the know how they're doing it right, but it's not appealing really to a broader audience because they, you know, I, I mean, you see that like there's this gap between the two um, and it's almost like the EFF has got, got the one, the, the rhetoric down and then the, um, uh, and the, and the focus and the decisiveness down and the DA has the, you know, maybe the technical skills down, but if you put them together, they would probably do a pretty good job, but I don't know if that ever would happen, but um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm wondering why neither of them can sort of learn from each other to do, what the other one does better, um, the EFF don't have an opportunity to do it, but the DA definitely does um, in terms of getting their messaging right. I think, yeah, well, one might say that they did try in the city of Joburg and city of Pretoria to come together and look at the, and also I think it's uh, Port Elizabeth, if I'm not mistaken, and it didn't really work out that well. But look, it's an issue where I think the advantage the DA has is the fact that they've been able to build this over years. I think we have to give them credit for that. They've, this is not a project that started five to six years ago. I think there's an article, I can't, can't remember, it was, in the set, it was in the Star newspaper, in, it's a Johannesburg paper, about 10 or 11 years ago, uh, I think it was by Judith February, and she made the argument that, listen, at a technical level, you have to give the DA credit, because the DA competes quite competently with a lot of international opposition parties in terms of where they govern. But the issue, and she picked it up about 10 years ago, the key issue is, as you're saying, people sometimes want more than an opposition in South Africa. One might even use look at the, what happened within the ANC about our present, former President Thabo Mbeki and President Jacob Zuma. Look, at the most pettiest of level, what people started to say about present, uh, former President Thabo Mbeki is that he, he, didn't, he was cold. He didn't come across as a caring and warm person. And that this guy, i.e. named President Jacob Zuma, he has that ability to make us feel warm and cuddly. Well, we kind of found out how that all went. But mm. it's an issue of saying uh, the, the problem with the EFF is that it, unless they can actually prove this to be true, that listen, you can actually take the ideology and rhetoric which you put into policy, especially the economic part, and put it into reality, then South Africans really will not trust them. It, it could be an issue of saying, I like you because you make the right noise in parliament, but I don't trust you at my municipality. And the DA could be, I don't mind paying the rates and taxes where I live because I see that the value of my property is going, is going up, but I don't trust you that when it comes to critical issues like black economic empowerment that you might give me a fair share. And this is just maybe speaking to your, your middle class, your black middle class, because that, that's where they really are struggling to, to make inroads. Uh, people, and I won't speak about township and rural areas because when you actually read a lot of their policies, they themselves uh, and now look, it's a, maybe it's, a, it's an advantage of the fact that if you look at Cape Town or Western Cape, 
the Cape, the municipality, Cape Town municipality is one of the oldest in South Africa, if not the continent, because that's where basically you, most of the colonists came in and they established those institutions. The other thing is that they never had a bank to stand. So it's always been a functional municipality. So those technical skills are always there regardless. But the issue seems to be if how do they interact with you know the rural rural municipalities? Because it maybe if they the juxtaposition could be if the DA could take over a rural municipality and actually show themselves to be proven to be true as and bring the same level of economic development they brought into Cape Town, if they could do that same, let's say in the Eastern Cape then it could be an issue of people saying maybe this thing does work. So the EFF and DA are both stuck in you know, different paradoxes. One wants the ability to show that they can be a technical party, but the issue to say, I think the EFF is less than 10 years old. And it's, if you look, I always play this thought experiment with my students. If we were to give the EFF any municipality now, the key question we always have to ask them is what are you gonna put into place? Because that takes you having, it's one thing to have the right politicians to make the right rhetoric. It's one thing to have a, a city manager who is both a CEO and a financial guru at the same time. So, and I think we never really quite see it in South African politics. And the only parties that have done quite well is the ANC and the, and the DA because of the history. The fact that they actually do have a side of a party, which is the politicians and the technocrats. Now, whether they're great technocrats or not, that's not the debate we're saying, but they have the ability to say, listen, if we were to win a municipality, is it a must that we must send uh, the commander in chief Julius Malema there? Because it's one thing to be standing up in parliament and it's a whole other thing to have to, have to speak to, uh, I mean, people who are actually running in municipalities, unions who might not like you, uh, you and there are communities who have got different interests because that's the problem with South African municipalities. There's always a rich side of South African and there's a poor side of South African. How do you equalize that out? So it's an issue of saying the longer the EFF stays without a municipality, the longer the struggle is going to be where they, they cannot say we can prove empirically we can run a municipality and we can actually govern real government. And the DA's side is that the longer they keep showing themselves to be shown to only be able to govern in certain places and not others, it sort of embeds people's belief that, well, you're good because it's the Western Cape. And let's be honest, who would not be able to take money out of running Cape Town? Yeah. I mean, that's really like, uh, you know, um, I, I want to just... Um wrap up because otherwise we might be talking about this um, and not get into uh, the discussion about COVID. But, um, you know, just some numbers on, on that. So the EFF, well, I think, was founded in 2013. Um, well, I, I don't think. I just Googled. So. <laughs> and then and the DA is 2000. Uh, so it's you know, nearly a 20-year nearly a uh, history there. Um, so you've got a long... Uh, the EFF, again, like we always say, like they've done phenomenal, um, whether you like them or, or not, over the last couple of years. Um, I'm intrigued to see how you can go that long without a new municipality and saying that you are actually able to run things. I mean, it's just the fact that people still vote um, on that. But the same thing can be said about the DA because, you know, uh, you can run a, a, a province for a while, but you haven't been able to get any sort of inroads into national. And what does that say? And I, I, I just want to touch on one last thing and maybe a good example. And if you could speak briefly about this before we move on. One, you, you spoke, I, I remember that state when the DA had got, um, I think the big, four big metropoles. So they had PE, Cape Town, Pretoria and Joburg. I yeah. think that was, you know, that was like their most, like their, their most successful well, run with, with the ability to have impact. Um, and then Herman Shabo who went and 
um, in was sort of leading from the front there, Joburg. I, I'd be curious to find out what your thoughts are. I know, and I just want to unpack. I mean, maybe that could be another podcast in itself, but it just seems like with a lot of promise. Um, and you were saying he was a CEO. I mean, not you. I don't think you're referring to him, but these mm-hmm. people that have been CEOs in their own businesses and whatnot, him from coming from black like me. But it doesn't sound like. Um, he was able to do what he had set out to do uh, for a number of reasons. Um, and then that shows the DA's first opportunity to like, Hey, Joe Berg, black middle-class, you know, we, we, we can do this. And it didn't seem like they were successful. Am I reading it right? You were, but the odd thing about then it speaks again to when you expand as a DA it means you have to open yourself up to different people. And that's the only explanation you can get for someone like uh, Mr. Former Mayor Herman Mashaba, where they had to find somebody who could appeal to the, let's say the Joe Berger, meaning someone who says, I know business. Because again, it wasn't an outright victory, because I think that that's the other thing. It was more like a, it was a stalemate. And in, in the interim, the EFF got to do what they love doing best, which is, listen, we get to flex our power. Uh, but the, let's just maybe pretend that it went the way that they wanted it. And another problem comes in to say, they found that, look, because the DA's big thing has always been, we can do what we did in Cape Town. Well, the dynamics of Cape Town and Joburg are two different worlds apart. Yes, you, both areas have got a, a vast amount of wealth, but the, the levels of poverty and rural, and I mean, the, just the townships are just very different. So maybe you're right in saying they missed an opportunity where I think had they been able to tweak it correctly, by tweak it to say, look, they have got a formula. No one can deny that the DA's formula of governance seems to work. Because governance, regardless of where the world over, it always works the same, which is, have you got the right people in place? And are you able to identify what needs to be done? And in South Africa's case, when you run a municipality, it's always, can you keep the northern suburbs lights on and the streets and values going up? And with that money, can you go into areas which are previously disadvantaged and actually get them, look, can they be suburbs? That's what they should be. But can we get the services and levels up so that people can actually say, listen, you know what? It's not the worst thing in the world to have to stay in the township. Like Soweto was a, was a perfect example. Had they been able to build upon what the, ANC, the good things the ANC did do in a place like Soweto, Soweto would have been able to say, well, look, this DA thing is not the worst thing in the world. They've built upon it. They've improved the, the design of the ANC. Maybe let's give them more of a chance. But I think they got lost in the politics of it. And maybe it's because if you are governing as a coalition, you, you tend to have to keep one eye closely on your partner and what their desires and what their wishes are and one eye on the population. But in a place like Joburg where the population demands 100% of your, because that's what they've been used to. They've been used to the ANC giving them 100% of their time, meaning when we protest, you are here, you're speaking to us. When I say there's problems about the economic, let's say sewerage in the township, you are here and you are answering my question. So I think they lost track of what they used to be able to do very well, which is to say, let's actually keep an eye on the population. And I know that they were told, I said, listen, we had a partner who believe, we believe they could help us with this. But it's an issue of saying, I think towards the end, they sort of dis- decided to not know what, what they wanted to do. And they got lost in the politics and they could always say, well, it's not our fault, it's the EFF. But the rest of the population might say, but listen, your mayor has, wears the blue and white flag of the DA. So yes, it might be the EFF in reality, but that's, but that's not what most people don't care about. What we care about is that you guys have been pronouncing that we've got four of the big municipalities, the four metros, and you're not governing mm-hmm. them well. And I think towards the end, I think they have to be, be blamed for this, that they basically took their eye off on what they could do well, and people just start to get irritated with them. And the issue of Mr. Herman Mashaba and his politics, again, it, 
from the beginning, the question I asked was, was he the right person from the beginning? Because surely the party would have, with the history they've had in building their bases in Gauteng, because they've built the bases quite well in Gauteng, was he surely the only person the DA could bring to, could bring to the population? Because if they're saying yes, then questions again get asked about, but without what, do you actually understand what it means to have an opposition who's finally ready to govern? Because I think they mm. seem to always lose track of that at the end. Yeah, yeah, that's... Um... I think, um, anyway, I think Herman Schmschaller was just like a really, it sounded like such a good idea, businessman, Joburg, it's got to work. But then the actual, the actual and diplomacy, I think that comes with being involved as a, a mayoral uh, activity might not have been there. Um, and then I, I've, it's quite interesting, that notion of, um, I, I almost had a knee-jerk reaction when you said the ANC has 100% um, uh, focus on the, on, the, on the people, I'm sure there's a lot of people that might disagree but then the following explanation there um it, it made sense so um i thought it's probably a decent time to kind of con uh, uh change our of tact and our tack rather and um and move into discussion about COVID 19. um you know where we at i just looked at the figures today i think it's still under 2000 infections in south africa um 18 or so uh, uh deaths unfortunately and um around 100 or so recoveries so if you compare us to America, it's, there's no, um, you know, there's no comparison where you've got 400,000 people. If you compare us to China, um, unless we're keeping our numbers down by also not telling the full story, uh, I don't know. Um, it's, that's not that a topic for this discussion, but um, let's really sort of unpack. We've had two weeks of lockdown. Um, what, what, has, what has sort of transpired since that in your minds? And I think what I'm, I think what the purpose of this discussion, what I'm trying to unpack is to say like how, like a country in South Africa, like South Africa, we've just got such vast differences in wealth, in education, in there's race, religion, everything. How do you find policies to police um, in times of national emergency? And um, I wonder whether, like, it seems there's been some, there's definitely been positives and there's been massive negatives. Um, but we just aren't the same as a Australia or, I don't know, Chile or something along those lines where there might be more uh, unison within the populace that makes it easier for the government to, to police them. Um, like, I, I think we, if we could talk around sort of four pillars being um, uh, predominantly uh, health, police, transport and the army, um, I think those would be probably the most vocal in, this, in, this, in these past two weeks in terms of the clusters. Uh, but before jumping into that, I thought maybe it would be interesting to talk about the cultural component. Um, and this is something that we've spoken about a few times now, uh, about where we look at Southern Europe and we look at African culture and we draw some comparisons to start asking the questions why it is difficult to do something like a lockdown in South Africa. All right, now, culturally, and I think I'll just maybe pick up the conversation, I'll start there. I'll start by using the, the Italian example where well, the first patient is it? I always get it wrong because I always go for X, not patient zero, but... Is it no, patient? it's patient zero, it's patient zero. Okay, this time I've got it, it's patient zero. Because they did a, they were just basically trying to understand how is it that it moves so quickly across Italy, but what they found about this patient zero who came from China, look, the person didn't know to their defense, not as though they were purposely spreading the, the virus. They didn't know, but he came back to Italy and he did what most Italian people would do. He lived a very outdoors lifestyle. He was quite gregarious of his nightlife, met lots of friends in the evening. He ran marathons while he, when he came back. And that, that's part and parcel of your Southern European culture. 
and it's it's all about social it's all about being part of a community and you know the bigger the, the bigger family so to speak and mm. that linkages has a lot of resonates a lot with south africa because if you look at our population and look and have to be very clear we're not saying people that live in shacks live in shacks because that's what they freely want to do to be close to one another that that's a travesty that's not what's supposed to happen but if you even look at among the middle class in south africa south africans tend to be and africans tend to be close mirror southern europeans a lot there are a lot of mm. personal interactions uh, a lot of uh, close spaces if you look at the the nightlife we all tend to kind of gravitate towards having a nightlife not by yourself but with a group of people mm. and if you look at how the fire the, the modus operandi of this virus is it tends to actually be worse in situations like that and i'll compare this to the german experience you i'm sure i i'm a big football fan but you're already hearing talks that look the bundesliga will be coming back and you ask yourself but how is that possible if you look at the german culture it's one of where yes look the germans are not machines they have got families they they, they are able to love debatable <laughs> i like my germans so i'll just keep saying that they are, they've got the ability to love but it's an issue of saying the issues of personal space one to one is is quite they can't enjoy the space yes they've got a nightlife but if you ever go out in in your in your normal german cities you'll see that the, it's not the same as going to madrid or barcelona so it's an issue of saying maybe the by virtue of culture and association they've been able to treat it better because maybe the culture leads to it it's not something i think we consciously do because you are what you sometimes the culture is you don't personally think well should i get close to this person it's what you tend to naturally do so i think later on it, there is room for actually studying how this is going how it's going to work in places like southern europe and also africa now the problem and i think the issue of lockdown i was speaking to not a friend but i just i think i was speaking to you i was resonating a, a story when i was going to the local supermarket here and I, uh, so obviously now there's this new protocol that you need to give social distance between people so i'm seeing these four people and there's no social distance in the line between them so uh, i think one of the supermarket attendants comes through and says look uh, can you please understand that we need very nice he was very nice about can you just practice the social distance thing it turns out out of all four of these people only one of them was really there to buy the rest was just there to support this person buying i was like yeah th- mm. this is why southern europe and africans have that in common that we always like being within a group so it's yeah. i think later on it will be interesting to see whether and how this works out in terms of studies whether this virus would spread in places where people live a more southern european and african lifestyle or your northern your normal northern european let's keep our distance between each other type of thing yeah i think that's um i think that's interesting because obviously that will affect the policies that each respective government um puts in um i mean we we're not going to get into the into doing detail but the us being sort of and new york being um the epicenters also probably results in another conversation and that's probably predominantly due to uh the amount of foot traffic coming in from all over and predominantly china you know there's there's this not predominantly china but a number of um people coming in and out of the country in new york being such a hub so that's probably an explanation there and then to what you're saying in like that with that patient zero you know there's also just the you know the cliche of the italian is the uh, two kisses on each cheek and um i, I know these things are like i think that they will need we're we're not medical people we're just sort of um um sort of summate like we were just making some guesses here but like i think that could potentially be part of it um also the intergenerational living i think that's also a component in south africa I, you know you could you know predominantly in african culture and indian culture as well um you know it's quite very common and very um looked upon whereas you know white south africans like me it's like kick 
your child at home as soon as possible because, you know, you, you're, you're taking up rent and space and we want to turn <laughs> your room into a studio. I'm not talking from experience. Um, but that's, yeah, so that's that thing. And one last thing before we move on, I, you know, I hope, you know, I know we haven't met before in person, but we're kind of friends. So let's just keep moving. Um, uh, so I am... Um, I wanted to just now let's so the so the response from South Africa, the government policy is like a couple of reasons. We you know we always hear about it, the fact that if it got into townships, it would spread um, due to the concentration of how people live so rapidly. We don't have the type of healthcare system where I hear folks complaining about the NHS and um, the US system being under strain. Clearly, it is. The Italian example shows that that uh, these northern uh, you know people in developed countries can't actually handle the strain that the COVID is bringing. Um, we would never be able to at all if it came to that sort of level of infection with our immune, um, our, our, our country with so many people with immune um, diseases such as HIV, TB, et cetera. And the hypertension, I think, was another one I heard, which is also these things that you just don't think about. Mm. Um, has that resulted in the government going and saying, okay, we've only had a couple of hundred um, infections, well, I think it was 50 or 60 when um, Ramaphosa came out and didn't do the elbow dab, but then he said, let's go now full, full tilt. That's probably driving those reasons. And now if you could break down a little bit about the clusters, um, how they've come about it and how some seem to be maybe like, um, he's, a, he's a bit more nuanced. He's not as hard line who he could be if it was maybe a Dr. Fauci from the US, I don't know. Are you able to sort of break it down, focusing on predominantly the medical sphere, transport, um, and police slash army? Okay, no, I'll, I'll try and look at it, like you say, using the clusters. I think, look, as you said, the first point of call to start is, look, it, it's a tough one. No, no president, no prime minister wants this on their table. And I think President Trump was in his, and his part, and look, and the government, they're doing as best as they could. And this is where maybe we have to give the opposition some credit that they said, listen, they, when they started, they said, we'll step aside. We're, we're there to support, but we'll step aside. And I think maybe it speaks to the measure of the fact that they could say, look, President Ramaphosa, in this situation, you are the man, and we can fall behind you. And I think that, that really shows the good side of South African <laughs> politics, that when there's a danger, it would seem as though we can kind of coalesce together. But what you're asking about the, about the more technical side of it, that, that, that's been, for me, the most interesting thing. The fact that you've got a, a doctor who I've, I learned that they, he has got his own version of the CDC, or Council of Diseases also advising him on the side. Now, it's always amazed me, you know, when it comes to how the ANC governs that when it comes to certain departments, uh, when it comes like Treasury, they tend, I'm, I'm, I for one, I don't always think they have the best ministers, but they always tend to make sure that they have a minister who the market can appreciate. That is someone who, if they were to walk into an investment bank, the investment bankers would say, this guy might not understand derivatives, but he understands that we need to make money and he, he'll allow us to do that. But it's always been sad that they don't seem to do the same for all other ministries. So it just happens to have coincided that one of the things they did seem to get right is to say, listen, a health minister, it does help if it's a doctor. Now, I've got friends and family that are healthcare professionals and they could tell you that's not always the case, that doctors don't actually make the best managers. But in this case, you have a doctor who was also a former premier of a province and he was also a minister of, I think it was Cockney, if I'm not mistaken. So he's got enough experience to understand the management side of government. And you can see the difference that when he gets asked certain medical protocols, and I'll use the controversial one where South Africans are up in arms about, can we go jogging or can we go walking our dog? As a doctor, he, he when he fully said, look, 
for me, I don't see it as a problem because as long as you keep your social distancing, as, that's, a, that's a professional medical advice. And you could see that he was comfortable in giving that information. Odd enough, the other person who's a doctor in the cabinet is Dr. Kosazana Dramini Zuma, when they spoke about the, the vaccine issue from, I think it was one of the mayors in, in, the, in the Kuruleni. She could give a professional answer. And I think what's made a difference is that when somebody who is a professional in that area speaks, we, not only do we listen more, but it takes it tends to make a whole lot more sense. I don't have to understand the science, but when someone makes sense, it makes sense. Which really brings us maybe to the, the bigger issue of saying the reason why they've been so, I think, science-led, and I have to say evidence-based, is as you said, a hundred in a country like South Africa can multiply very quickly. If you take into consideration how, AIDS, the, how HIV and AIDS is still a problem in South Africa, I know we don't speak about it as much as we used to in the 90s, but HIV and AIDS is still a huge problem in South Africa. And I think those other, and those other medical conditions you put, you put forward. So it's an issue of saying well, 100 in South Africa could so quickly multiply into something uncontrollable. Already, we don't have the best medical public health system in the world. And I think this, uh, I wrote an article recently where I said, listen, COVID, in a way, it's a black swan, but it's, it's probably one of the worst black swans we've had because it sort of highlighted everything that's wrong with our government. And this is where I'll answer your question more directly about the classes. If in terms of health, if we have been struggling for so long, to have, and I, I want to make the use of with public health. Public health is very different. It's not to say, look, you have a doctor in hospital. No, it's an issue of saying, is your population to intellectual to the level where they know how to actually be more preventative? Which is to say, it shouldn't be that when I'm sick, I always go to the to the hospital. Are there certain things we can prevent in the beginning? And I think South Africans, if you look at issues of obesity, if you look at issues of diabetes, a lot of time it has to do with lifestyle. And the argument then goes maybe to the, to the other cluster of, of uh, which I think is, is the issue of transport, which is to say, look, people are not obese because of my word, we just love eating and sitting down and watching. I'm not sure if people still watch Days of Our Lives or whatever people watch these days. But it's an issue of saying uh, the diet in South Africa is, a very, is one that's very poor because we don't actually have the necessary, people are not earning or don't have the types of job that allow them to eat healthy in South Africa. So you go yeah. for a high no? Sorry, I just want to, I'm just, while I'm thinking, um, I just think that there's some connection there um, to drill down into the type of work the majority of people are doing. You know, it is long hours, um, retail type stuff, uh, whatever. And the decentralized way of the, the low income folk results in them having to wake up, you know, like three or four, the domestic workers, these is not, you know, they're waking up super early traveling long distance, they've got a long commute in a crappy um, taxi that's pretty unsafe, um, where, you know, if it's during times like these, it's, it's 70, now 70% 70 um, capacity, and we can speak about that as well. Um, that, you, you can't, you can't get up and, you know, like me, make a smoothie, um, and then do, okay, I'm revealing too much information, but do <laughs> yoga in the evenings or stuff and, and, and have a, it's just very difficult when, when it is a sedentary lifestyle, mm -hmm. um, you're not um, sort of involved in manual labor potentially, or, or having a white collar job where you can actually have an eight hour day and plan yourself accordingly. So there's, I think there's that component as well, which I think, it intensifies the the inability to have a, I like that public health, a, a good public health outside of, because I'm not a fan of uh, nationalized healthcare at the moment, particularly in South Africa. I don't think we would, um, we, we aren't struggling, we're struggling to do with what we have. But I think there's that longer discussion, which we don't kind of, um, you know, we, we don't speak about. And I mean, blood pressure um, is amongst the African population is, is um, 
is a real thing. And I mean, as your wife is a doctor, so you know quite well about this. I mean, we're well aware about this, but anyway, uh, I just wanted to pick up on that a little bit. And um, yeah, but I, I'm interested to hear like just to a little bit push back on how, um, what, what I was getting to, and, and like, I know like the doctor would say like, oh, it's fine. You can just go and uh, Dr. Nkiza, you can go for a walk and whatnot. But there was a less strong arm approach, which I think he could have as a medical profession said, this is how we're doing it. And I'm thinking that they, within the policy that the governments are putting out to tackle this, there is some fracture um, and has resulted in um, people on the security cluster taking a bit too much over and the, the ones on the, um, the, the, the softer side, the, 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 I don't know, softer doctors are, are, aren't as much. I don't know if that's, that's what I'm trying to, Pinpoint yeah, no, 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 I, I get Richard. I think maybe which brings us back to I think one of the first questions you asked to say, listen, if if you were in the you know, the position of President Sir Ramaphosa, so you have, and I think I like the way you painted, we've got a population which, look, there are your JEC, Cape Town, bishops, and the people are quite well off. Mm. And then you have a, the majority of our population who literally depend on public transport system, depend literally you are depend your life is Every day I get into this taxi or this pub, because uh, taxis are not public transport. I always hate, hate that issue. Every time I get into this taxi, I'm literally going to make sure that I can put something on the table. So you have almost these two or three economies in one. And then as a president, it, the issue is if it were to, if he had come up with a situation that says, listen, truth be told, I think people that are financial or know better how to do social this, you can just imagine the country erupts. It's just an issue of saying, okay, so you're equating poverty with stupidity now. Or if it goes the other way of saying, listen, truth be told, uh, we, the people that kind of brought this virus in are people who travel a lot and who tend to have white collar jobs. So you guys live in a state of lockdown and let the rest of the population go. So it, it was almost like a lose-lose. So what, what, this is my thinking. I think they had to think about it like this to say, how can I upset everybody, but to the level where everybody is upset? Obviously, there will be different portions of how upset people are. But it needs to, I need to show that I did take a decision and that people, not everyone is happy with the decision, but they're all unhappy, but they can actually see that I'm doing work. Hence, mm. I think he needed to balance it off with, in one hand, you have someone like Dr. Mkhize who can give you the signs of saying, listen, if we were to practice social distancing, but then you have intelligence, uh, or let's say the minister of police, who says, listen, as much as I respect you, uh, Dr. Mkhize, you have to understand that I tend to see people either when they're at parties and they're starting to get shot up or where people start to not know how to behave among themselves. So it's almost like if you had to take Dr. Mkhize and Minister Bekikele, it's almost like you have to appease both of them to say, listen, how do, we, how, do I, how do I keep both people happy? And it's not about keeping both people happy, it's about people keeping people unhappy. And in their unhappiness, if I find that there's almost a level of where people whether you're in the middle class or whether you live in a certain, uh, in a, let's say, in a, in a township and you say, ah, this, this thing is not cool, the president has done his job. Because South Africa is, there is no one South Africa policy to keep people happy. Mm. Uh, that's always a reality, which I think every minister and every president goes by. So for me, it's an issue of where he had to make a decision. And the decision is, I'm going to upset people, but it's an issue of how much I, I upset them by. Yeah, I, I mean, there's, look, I, 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 don't, I wanted to pick up that you backed off when you said intelligence, really. <laughs> like, I don't know if you stopped, you stopped your train of thoughts, uh, like, you know, leading into the uh, Honourable Police of, uh, Commissioner. But um, I, I, you said it, not me. Um, but what, what um, 
I mean, look, I think we, we will be sort of touching in at the, towards the end about the consequences and clearly the economy. Uh, we haven't really spoken about it and for obvious reasons, because I think that could, there is too much to be said about that. And we can only find out from with the, the, the beauty of hindsight, what's going to happen uh, and foresight, I guess. But I'm sort of park off that for a bit. I think there is something maybe that I'd like to sort of un unlock with um, uh, two sides. One is the policies that were sort of initially put out and then retracted or reduced somewhat. We've seen that happen. So we've seen um, uh, Mabulula used to mention earlier, um, he, the transport minister, came and uh, originally it was 50% occupancy on, on taxis and whatnot. And um, that resulted into, I think there was 70% or a certain framework. And I think that was basically based it was on a occupancy that allowed it to be somewhat profitable. I think there was a break even point that they needed to achieve. So there, there is showcasing that the government goes out and says, ah, oh, we've got to be forceful. We've got to make everybody unhappy and, and do things for the greater good. But then they come up against taxi bosses and they go, oh, okay, we don't have that ability to, we, we don't want to win this. We don't want to t take on this fight maybe because that's probably, I don't even know if our army can, um, has, has the, has the cart there. Um, and then, um, and then what, what we've kind of spoken about off air a few times um, in our discussions is like the level of unlawfulness that we have as South Africans. I mean, across the board, like I live in an affluent area in, in um, the West, in Cape Town, Camps Bay. And the day before um, we were going, you know, the, the Western Cape uh, government shut the beaches um, earlier than lockdown. So I went for a run. And the beaches, people are on the beaches. So like, it's just, if they hadn't shut the beaches down, people would have gone to the beaches after being told not to. They shut, the down, shut it down and uh, they carried on going. And whether or not you have issues with the way that they said, don't go to the beaches, that's another thing. Um, and then also like, also when I've, um, you know, you go around um, with a gone to the shops and something, you can still see people, the odd person, having to walk the dog or, um, or going for a jog and then whatnot we just don't have the ability to follow the rules and that's affluent folks that is middle-class folks that is people in the townships um so the one thing is that a okay then Cyril goes and says Cyril or opposer says okay we've got to be stronger on these guys to make sure that they follow the rules because it's such a risk but can they even is there's, there's this un, unenforceable force that they won't be able to achieve if, if you know what i mean there's that gap you do not get that sweet spot, sweet spot with policy is maybe just beyond that, especially in times of like that. But I don't know where you are. If I'm, if I, if you're following me, so like, um, there's, there's obviously enforceable um, policies and there's unenforceable policies. And maybe the government has stepped a little bit too much into unenforceable policies during this time. So that, those are just the two, the two, I mean, trajectories that I wouldn't mind you sort of unpacking for a bit. Oh, no, I'll work, I'll work it backwards because I think it kind of does link the, the, the term of enforceable. I think what, there may be another way to put it to say it's almost a cit it's a citizen consciousness because there comes a point where government puts laws and policies down and look, our politics and the media is very big on, okay, not even on policy. We don't actually do a lot of critiquing of policies in, in the media, but it's, it's an issue of saying people are very big in knowing what government must do. But there's always, there's always been that missing gap. I think that's what you speak about, that unforceability, which, is, which says, yes, government puts forward an action plan in the form of a policy or, or laws, but the people that actually need to carry it out through, and actually by through, I mean, A, you either critique it as a, as a citizen to say it's wrong and you give the necessary feedback, or you, you go to public hearings, 
or, or in a situation where it's quite cut and clear, as in this is a life and death situation, you listen. South Africans, I think, have been very poor. I think our politics, or let's say our body politic, has given us so much material where we can actually pin it on politicians that we've actually been very bad in introspection by that, which mm. is to say, am I actually a law-abiding citizen? You know, um, I'm sure if you, you've traveled, you've gone to the US. I'm not saying the US is a mark of everything good, but even when you go to the EU, there is that level of almost self-criticism as a, as a citizen, which is expected as part and parcel of being a citizen, that mm. you have got the ability to look look among yourself and say, am I a law-abiding citizen? And oddly enough, I had the experience of studying with Chinese students. Chinese people actually have that. Mm. In a dictatorship, they have that, where I can actually say, am I a good Chinese citizen? And I think we've yet in South Africa been able to get to the level where to say, yes, let's, we know what the politicians are, I want to park that aside, but am I a good citizen? If I had to look at this issue of the lockdown, I mean, I also live in an area where people, in Joburg, people tend to be, let's say, shouting, people tend to be more extravagant or maybe flamboyant in how they break the law. What you tend to find where I live is that parents will throw the ball way down there, ask the child to go get it, and then you'll see them jogging looking inside saying, no, no, I'm going to go get the ball. Fully, we can all see that this person is walking the dog or they're taking a jog because you, you cannot do that 15 times in a row. It either means your child or the ball is, either the child or the ball, something is very wrong there. But, but I think it's a normal action. I think speaking to you last time, you said it's not that South Africans like breaking the laws. It's South Africans that are looking for the loophole. We are the loophole nation. And mm. I think this, this Black Swan event, I think, has got to make us really think, Yes, we know what government is, but do we know what we are as citizens are? And I think that's a problem. And maybe this then touches on the issue of having taxis as a mode of public transport. Taxis should not be turned to public. It's a private initiative, which is basically filling the gap because we don't have a proper public transport system. And the fact that you go to negotiate, as in, let, let's put it like this, you, you're able to, you want to go negotiate with taxi, with taxi bosses, and you want to appease taxi bosses more than you want to go speak to factory owners. Mm. That, that for me is quite problematic because this also shows you how much dependent the majority of South Africans are on taxis. Because the, the bigger question for me was to say, listen, we've got buses which are owned by government and in certain areas, I know it's Patco, I don't know, Cape Town is, is it my city, right? No, there's my city, but there's also, I mean, it's Golden Arrow was the old name. Um, I don't know if it's still that, but there is some, there's quite a few few buses floating around. Yeah. That should have been the first port of call to say, listen, because I think maybe what they did, they did the due diligence to actually see that, oh my word, we actually don't have public transport here. We are so dependent on taxis. Now this can go another what, two ways. One, you now find that you're at the mercy of people who, look, it's a private initiative, hence they'll argue to say, no, no, you can't tell me to only have three or four or five people in this private industry. I need to make a profit. And now you're stuck. You kind of have to, because this is the people you brought to the dance. This is who you have to stick with. Or two, which I'm hoping, and this will become the issue that government will start to see that this is not a healthy way to, to go forward. Where, you know, the poorest of our people are so dependent on a system, which, as you said, is not safe, one. Two, it's a law unto themselves. Because there is an issue to say, we all know if taxis stop in South Africa, the economy stops. And for me, you know, as a planner, the strategist, that's always been a, 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 a sure way of ensuring that you've got this, uh, it's a content monopoly because I know it's owned by different actors and players, but you've got, an, you've got a sector which is so not dependent on you as a government, it's the other way around that it's going to bring problems. And I'm just hoping that this event really does show government that they need to invest in a public transport system.
I mean, it's. I think you know, a cartel would probably be quite an accurate yeah. description yeah. of the. And I think that's yeah. That's, I, there was just there was a really good point that you raised, and I'm 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 trying to remember what it was. Um, but yeah. Um, if it's not coming, I think um I think maybe um. Uh, what I I did want to speak to is just sort of how how the uh, I like oh, what you said like when um speaking to taxi owners opposed to actual factory owners and and I think it was uh, some explanation is what you said is is that they still are vastly more important of getting essential workers when it comes to um you know whether it's the people that keep the lights on or sweep the streets or uh, nurses and all these people that um you know still use uh, that lower um, low sort of income private uh, taxi service, but uh, that's the kind of sway that they had, and um, I think that was probably my concern um, mostly. And um, like we we've we've almost hit the hours, so like I, I don't think we can unpack too much more um, um, because there's there's so much to be said about the way that the army has responded in terms of uh, police brutality that we've seen, whether the videos are are completely verified that's still up, up in the air, but there have been a number of incidents, um, particularly amongst uh, townships uh, and whatnot, that I th and, and with police, which has shown um, uh, some some concerns, you know, and then you got the officials like Pekitele uh, saying, uh, let's keep the alcohol prohibition going for longer than the, the lockdown. And um, that's, you know, I'm I'm always worried when authoritarian measures are put in place in the in a short space of time, and then we see a new dawn um, and that's the sort of status quo going forward. And it's been seen, I mean, and historically we've seen that numerous times. And um, do you share any of those concerns um, that some of these policies that are um, short-term turn into being long-term before we, we touch on the actual long-term implications that we think might happen? Oh, maybe, I think maybe I've got a contrarian view where, uh, like, like the original argument advanced, I think South Africans are lawless. <laughs> So for me, I'm one of those people that if something is lawless, you need to put it into order. And so I'm not so much uh, against having maybe more draconian measures. The only issue is that I think we need to be very, we need to be, what's the word, circumspect about what, where we pick them to be. Because it, it cannot be that the army is seen solely to live in the township. Because that, I think, brings in the wrong message of saying lawlessness only lives in townships, which is not the case. So I would prefer if it was an issue of saying, listen, we're going to become more securitized, which is not to say we're becoming a, a dictatorship, but we're going to be try to put security places more visibly in South Africa. And we're not going to have an issue of where we don't mind using the army. Now, the army, I always say this, I don't, the army should, doesn't necessarily mean we have to see people with AK-47. The visibility of the army should be enough to deter, I think, certain bad behavior. And maybe this, that's what I'm saying. We need to be circumspect about how and where we use it. And then there's also the issue of where, like, look, I'm sorry to go back to this, but we actually have to look at the South African society when it comes to the law. The fact that we're so brazen about breaking it, you know, and this is not just when it comes to this lockdown. It's in terms of if you, there's always an argument saying people like saying government is corrupt, but then it's, if I'm not mistaken, government is corrupt with citizens. And mm -hmm. if, the, if you look at the private sector with, the, with a lot of what they've been doing, it's with citizens. So I think it's an issue of where maybe this is giving us time to really think about what type of South Africa we like. Because for, for one of the few times, certain people are saying, listen, there's actually safety in my township because there's not a lot of things going on. Now, I hate the fact that we've had to bring in the army for it, but it, it does bring to the issue that we need to have more of this conversation about South African security and the fact that citizens need to feel more visibly safe.
Yeah, I am. I'm trying to take some. I mean, uh, my my one response and 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 agreement to your your um, uh, component about lawlessness, like drunk driving type of stuff, yeah. like that is done um, with out impunity, bribery. When it has happened, is 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 so. These all these things are you know within us. We just seem to be okay with it. It's it's laughed off and whatnot. And I think. I think that's something that you can't overcome. I I think where I would disagree with you is that I don't believe that it comes from government um, sort of getting people to be good. Uh, I think it's maybe uh, the other way around somewhat. When when you look at government, what is it? It's a representation of the people. So if the if the if the populace is well, the population is somewhat lawless as we we're kind of arguing in favour of. Um, I think you and I. In, included in that population, um, the loophole of nation, which I think we should change from the, the rainbow, um, is it's a representation or, or, a, or a subset of that population. So we've, we then put them into power and then what happens in people with power, well, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. So, so I think there's that sort of, I, that's why I'm that's not, I, I don't believe it's gonna be that dri driven out through government when it's, it's we are, the, we are voting in people who are just who are us and that's like a circle um it's got to come from somewhere else and you know education is always said as a as a way to get that through and and wealth with education helps people um drop some of those things um i know we've i think spoken about this again a little bit of off air but with and, and we probably need to have a few more conversations where you have the likes of uh Singapore and South Korea and, and these sort of uh, these Asian countries that were able to take from the 60s places that were in um, pretty low income and who knows what they could have developed into and said okay we're going to be quite draconian and we are going to mm. be we're going to get things around we're going to get a civil service that gets the job done the business is going to work you know services are going to work education is going to work um, but it came from a dictatorial approach so I'm agreeing and disagreeing with you somewhat, um, but I, I think that's an important point. I, I don't know if, no, more, yeah, if there's anything no. more to add um, before we can move on to the, 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 the last component. Yeah, but I think uh, I actually like the way you put it because then it would explain the Minister of Communication. Uh, I think it's Mr. Because mm, uh, yeah, you're right in saying this is not, these are not people that came from nowhere. They come yeah. from a population and so what she's doing is what the majority of South Africans are doing. But again, it'll be an issue is if you and I were caught outside, would we I think would we still want to be slapped on the wrist with I think it's three months suspension of pay? Because I, no, I thought it was two months suspension, um, uh, one month no pay. Yeah. Which yeah. is, I mean, the, the amount of money they're making, is, it's basically peanuts at the end of the day. Yeah. So, so you're right in saying that. So I, I agree with you there. And yeah. But I'm glad, I'm, also I'm glad that you brought that up because I also think that speaks to so much. And I'm, look, what she did, there's so many things to be said about that. Um, I mean, just from the fact that you're communicate like from a PR component, if you're the communications person for the government and, you're, and your president is saying, stay home, and then you do something like that with that kind of an excuse. Um, it's just phenomenal. Um, I, I get frustrated with the folks that go out and like immediately go and say like, look how pathetic it is. And you know, we should you know, do this, this and that. You're like, she's having lunch, <laughs> you know? So the, uh, yes, at the moment in this world that we're living in, it's a different world. But like mm. the problem with these draconian laws that we are putting ourselves is that we are turning people into criminals for having lunch, walking dogs, this, this and that. Um, 
And there's so much to be said about this. And I know that we don't, um, we won't be able to address all the issues, but that's probably my own concern. I mean, I have a lot of concerns, but that's just one of the things that we might be, might be seeing. Um, yeah, but I'm glad you brought that up because I think that really ref sort of reflects the lawlessness, the lawlessness that we see as someone at that position of power that doesn't, doesn't even get it. Um, mm -hmm. um, I wonder if it's time to sort of turn towards the consequences um, of what we're seeing with this lockdown. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking to like hear, I know people with restaurants and, um, you know, restaurant owners who are, who are looking at expanding at restaurants or opening a couple more, um, you know, she's, uh, she's a personal friend. She's, she's not being able to do that. Obviously she's like losing staff, you know, it's a, it's a tremendous, and then that you can, that story, you can tell, you know, across the, across the line, we're going to be seeing that and we're going to be seeing a, a global slide into something of the unknown that we haven't seen before. Um, yeah, I, I think we spoke a little bit about sort of a treasury document that's going around to sort of look at what we believe is going to be happening in the next uh, five years. Um, but uh, what, what does a shorter, relatively short term look like? How long is this lockdown going to last for? We're in week two. Does it go for longer? Um, do they relax the laws that allows for small businesses or businesses to go back, but we keep social distancing and no, no crowds of more than 10 or 50 or whatever the number is. What do you think, um, not as a medical expert, that's, that's your wife, but what is, as a, as an, as a policy expert, what is, what is the, what do you think we should be doing? And, and then on the back of that, the sort of looming global recession and uh, crisis that we find ourselves in. Oh, well, look, well, look, led by, I think, led by evidence, because I think this is probably the, one of the few times where we can actually say evidence has to take a precedence over even ideology, is led by evidence is if it's shown that South Africa we is in the, we're flattening the curve, things are going in the right direction, I think we have to look at it sector by sector. Unfortunately, it's the only way we can do it is to look at it sector by sector. And we have to look at where could be a, the maximum impact of let's say by, by impact i mean if it's an industry which is really a, a heavy employer we look we might we have to we might have to relax certain things but i think it's going to be led on on the evidence because what now we don't want is a situation of where we're about to go into our winter and it seems as though this virus when it comes to winter it, it really does do quite well we don't want a situation where the south african mentality will be oh lockdown ends let's have a or oh, it's an opposite of a lockdown party whatever the I'm opposite gonna, is unlock up unlock a party and then basically yeah. it's it spreads so i think look we're gonna have to have a form of a lockdown going forward and when i say a form of it can take the form of a sector by sector but this is the new normal unfortunately and because we're fighting something which you cannot i cannot see whether you have it or why that i have it we have to i think look at it in terms of it's in a milit in a militaristic way which is to say sector by sector when we see improvements when when people are better behaved and this thing is more under control, we are basically are going towards normality. But this is the new normal, and until we get back to a normality which we know, we can only look at it sector by sector. It cannot be because I doubt is this thing is just going to end. Is it? I'm not sure when it ends, but because I've told myself what? I don't want to know the date. I just want to live as yeah. this new normal as as much as I can. But I doubt it's going to end. And look, just going forward, because there's also the issue of saying uh, migration between SEDEC, because it's one thing for you to be able to control, let's say, a province in your own country. If you open up the borders freely, willy-nilly now, because Zimbabwe, I mean, if, if we think our healthcare system is, is shambolic, what do you call Zimbabwe? 
And this is not by my estimation. This is what the Zimbabwean government themselves have said. So it's a nature of saying this is the new normal and we can only be led by what the evidence says. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, you're, you're not you're not coming with a hard answer. So I'm, I'm sounding you sounding like a politician now. But, um, <laughs> but I'm like I think um, it's so. Let's say we, we don't. It, it sounds likely that uh, it's not going to be just the three weeks. It's probably going to be something longer. Maybe six weeks. Maybe three months. Who knows? Um, it's going to be probably longer. Um, is there going to be some sort of stepwise uh, progression where each by each stage we say okay look there's been no new infection so folks can do this and so you know yeah. i think that probably sounds uh, realistic um we we are hearing I, I don't know if it's france or um there are some of the more affected european countries who seem to have it under control who are starting to allow certain components of the industry and uh, economy to get back to back to going um uh, do you like do you think we're just going to have an absolute fallout? I mean, we, we haven't touched on this much, and, but Moody, we've been downgraded. We've, we, we were at a bad economic place before this. Um, we've told business not to operate for a while. We've really got bad unemployment. I mean, that's an understatement. What happens on, when we go back and it's just the wheels just don't start turning again? And this is, I think, this is where... Uh, maybe I'm a bit different that I, yeah, obviously, look, there, there is, uh, we are going to go into, we already know, we, I think we went into this in a recession. It's going to be extended and the world now is in a recession. But I think this is now the perfect time for, the, for I think, the government in terms of economic policy to actually step up to the plate now. And I say this because I think we missed a trip post-2008. And by that, I mean, that is when we should well, have... We had Jacob Zuma, so... Yeah. You said that one, not me. You <laughs> that one. But... But by Mr. Trick, I mean, look, the structure of our economy is wrong. I think everybody who, who basically studies a bit of economic policy will tell you it's wrong in the sense that we are, we, we are unable to get into an economy where we're able to hire, to find sectors that can hire what we, are, what we have in abundance, which is uh, unskilled. But unskilled, I don't mean that they are not skilled. It's an, it's an issue of saying we need to be able to get bread into a quick skill, which is to say bread, if it means you can easily go into a factory, so be it. And I think we missed the trick in 2008. So this is now another opportunity where I think, and I have to say this because sometimes when you, when you speak to government people, not most of them know this. It's just that they'll tell you that, look, me knowing as a policymaker and me giving advice to the, to the politician are two different things where everybody knows we need a change. And I'm hoping that President Cyril Maposa in this interim, yes, he's dealing with COVID, but he's actually speaking to industry to say, listen, there's certain things we might have to sacrifice on. We even speaking to the unions to so say, listen, we need to get a lot of the young people into work. Now, how we're going to get them into work might be controversial because I know there was an issue of uh, the youth wage subsidy, which was not popular by, because of unions, but it's an issue of saying we don't have the luxury at the moment to be able to say, I feel as though I can pick this. We don't. We, we have to accept what we are. We're a country which is in recession. We don't have any room in terms of, we don't have these reserves like America where you can just pump in two trillion don't, we don't have that. What we are is a country that is desperate. And when you're desperate, every option needs to be put on the table. So I'm hoping this COVID also brings that to light, shows South Africans that, listen, we might be quite okay compared to the continent, but you have to understand the continent is moving forward from a low base. And here I'm speaking about Eastern African countries where, look, they're experimenting with many different models of doing things. And the time has come where we have to humble ourselves and say, listen, all options have to be put on the table. 
it's not options where you and I might like, and this is maybe it's going to, I don't want to now invoke our friends, the Chinese and, the, and their factories. We're not saying we want switch off factories, but it's an issue of saying we might have to go to the world and say, listen, you guys have been trading in China. That didn't work out so well. Look at what happened with COVID. South Africa is an environment where our, the majority of our population can speak an international language. When they do work, South Africans work very hard. So maybe this is a place you need to consider. We might need to be going on a world tour of trying to get these factories into South Africa. We might need to actually speak to our own private sector. And, and here I'm not speaking about your big JC. I'm talking about a, a bread, someone who's in the middle income who says, listen, I've got some equity. I want to start a business. And we might have to relax some rules. It's okay, Brett. How can I help you to become the entrepreneur you want to be? Because we're not going to work. Standard Bank, Net Bank, that's not where we're going to get our growth from. Our growth is going to come from the middle class. And I think this is a perfect opportunity to actually now realize that the good ideas are going to come from the from the middle class who have to be entrepreneurs. So I think if we don't use this time properly, I think we're going to repeat what we did in 2008, which is to go back to a model which really doesn't exist. Yeah, I think that's... Um... It's an interesting, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, approach to that dis uh, discussion, uh, particularly, you know, how do we reframe ourselves as an economy that can actually be be an engine of growth, which, it, as, as you rightly say, has stifled since 2008 when we had an opportunity. Um, I wonder if we will, you know, we, I think we rely on certain things that don't do that anymore, whether it's um, agriculture and mining, and um, but a, a highly skilled service ec economy, I think, there's potential there, you know, um, but there's information systems that needs to be corrected when we can't ensure a cable down to down here can keep going. Um, I think one of our big drives is, and it, it, I want to touch on it because you mentioned relax some of the laws and where China were able to say, go forth and build factories and put people in them. Our big thing is the level of strength that the trade unions have and the discussion between industry and trade unions and governments, how are they going to facilitate that conversation to make our labor competitive? Because, mm. you know, just personally with the work that I do, um, we are on average, I mean, obviously cheaper than Northern Europe, um, cheap, way cheaper than, you know, half the price of Europe and, and the UK or a third in the same case where it comes to the United States. Um, but, and on the same time, we have a, not only a language component, but there's a similarity in terms of culture. Like, regardless of where you are you, in, in South Africa, you would probably know references about how America sort of operates or how the UK or whatnot. And I think that's important and having that understanding and that similarity so that you can communicate through business. So, I, again, I agree with you that language component is one thing, but there's also that cultural component to some degree. Yes, we live in Africa, but there's something that there's a little bit more similar than maybe something in the, in the far, uh, far East. So I think that's another thing that we haven't captured uh, correctly um, and, and leveraged maybe our competitive labor being, it's competitive against um, uh, the, the UK and the US, but not uh, against Chinese, but there's components that we do, can do better, opposed to making things as cheap as possible. Um, and whether it's, I've got friends who do um, software development and whatnot and work for only foreign clients. Uh, and there's something that South Africans, and I think you spoke about it earlier, we work hard when we when we need to, and um, we have that ability, but um, it, I think there probably needs to be some direction from policy and government, um, and then an acceptance and an ownership by our population that is, as we keep on talking about, the loophole uh, nation. So I think it's a, it, it, it's not, I, I, I think there's this one 
two-way street at the moment where it's always, oh, look at the government. Uh, and there could probably be some more ownership um, taken on by, by folks. Um, we've definitely got to get through this crisis that we find ourselves in. And it's only, the only way we can look is, is to see what happens type of thing, a whole our breath, um, and, and go from there. Um, yeah, I mean, TK, it's always fantastic to talk to you. I don't know if there's anything else that you, any closing words, or um, we can or, say just chat next time. No, no, uh, I'm good. Uh, thank you again for the opportunity. And like you say, it's, look, this, I think this crisis, we, we have to live through it, but it was an issue of saying, I mean, that old, that horrible cliche of saying that the Chinese character alphabet has uh, the crisis and opportunity are one and the same thing. If we don't come up with this differently, I think it is a true crisis. But if we come up with it where our policies are different, and I think even us as a population are changed for the better, then I think it, it would have been a crisis well overcome. But if we go back to what we simply are at the moment, it is going to be a continued crisis. Brilliant. Tika, thank you so much. Good stuff, Brett.